Well, take your Bible. Let's go to Isaiah and chapter number six tonight. Isaiah chapter six. I think this will be somewhat of a familiar passage to some, but tonight I want to look at it maybe from an angle that is just a bit different. And I believe that there's a wonderful message here for us in this passage. Isaiah chapter 6, and starting with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Hear my Send me. There will be seasons in your life where you'll feel like God is missing. There'll be times when God will seem to have vacated his throne. He will seem to be absent in your life. Your prayers will seem to fall on deaf ears. You'll feel alone. You'll feel abandoned. And you'll wonder, where is God? I started dating a young lady in college when I was at the end of my freshman year. We were basically just friends, not thinking too much about the future just yet. But through the next year and the following year, we continued to grow our relationship, I guess you would say, and most would have called it dating. We hadn't talked about marriage. We hadn't told each other we loved each other or anything like that, but Our relationship was obviously growing. But she was a year and a half ahead of me in college. So she was going to be graduating at the middle of my junior year. God had worked in her life to teach in a Christian school. And she was trained as an educator and and, uh, had signed a contract to teach in northern Indiana in a Christian school there. And so she was going to be leaving and, and going off to teach. God was working in my heart to preach. He was calling me to preach during that junior year and was leading me toward evangelism. And we talked about this a number of times, and it just didn't seem like this was possibly God's will for us to continue our relationship. We were going two different directions. She was going into education. I was going into preaching, evangelism perhaps. And and uh, we just thought, boy, we must be missing something here. And we, we talked about it. We obviously prayed about it. And, and we just really were kind of confused. One day after lunch, we were talking about it. And we decided that it would be best for us to end our relationship. 
Following that conversation, I went to an afternoon speech class, and it was always a fun class. It was an upper-level speech class, and everybody in there had been in a number of classes together. We always had a lot of fun in there. But that day, I chose a seat over by the window all by myself because I was hurting. All of a sudden, there was kind of this emotional hole in my heart, and I couldn't stop crying. Now, I'm not a crier, but that day, I just I couldn't keep the tears from coming to my eyes, and... I remember sitting there and the teacher was looking at me like, what's wrong with you? And, and, and I kept thinking, God, where are you? It was 1976. I was to hold three revival meetings in the city of Los Angeles. I had never been to the state of California, much less the city of Los Angeles. I got in my car. I had a, a Volkswagen Beetle in those days had no air conditioning, and I began driving across the country to California. No interstate highways, two-lane highways, I'm going 55 miles an hour. I began to think, they lied to me in geography class, there is no Pacific Ocean. I mean, I was driving and driving and driving, and finally, after about three days, I got to the state of California. Now, we didn't have, we didn't have GPS in those days, we had maps. Now, for you young people, that's a piece of paper with lines on it, and the lines indicate where the roads are. And I'm trying to follow this map and find this church in the middle of Los Angeles in a city called La Puente, right in the heart of the city. And, and I, I finally got there. It was about 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and I was just excited to land somewhere, and excited about these three weeks of revival. And, and I pulled into the church parking lot, and there was a man working on some flower beds there, kind of sprucing things up around the building. And, and so I got out of the car, and I walked over to him and greeted him, and, and he greeted me. And, and I said, well, I'm John Getch, and he gave me his name, and he said, what can I do for you? I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm here to hold a revival. He said, well, I'm the pastor, and I don't know anything about that. I said, oh, well, Thanks. They got my car, and I drove down that street that I'd come up, and I thought, Lord, what am I going to do? I mean, I'm, the next meeting doesn't start for seven days, and, and here I am in Los Angeles. I drove about, I don't know, eight, ten blocks, something like that, and I came to a couple of hotels that I affectionately call flea bag hotels, I chose the nicer of the two, and I parked and went inside, and there was a nice young lady there. I said, I, I, I think I need to see the manager. And she called for a gentleman to come, and he came. He said, what can I do for you? I said, well, I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of in your town here for the next six nights, and I, I need a room. He said, no problem. I said, well, there's a little bit of a problem. I only have $36. I had no credit card. Nobody had credit cards in those days. I had $36. He, uh, he thought for a minute. He reached down under the counter and he pulled out a ring of keys. He said, follow me. He led me out a back door through a courtyard. It really wasn't a courtyard, but it was kind of supposed to be, I think. And really it was kind of filled with a bunch of old dressers and beds and the weeds were growing up between them. And we walked through some of that uh, stuff and went to a kind of a, another side of the building and he took one of those keys and opened an iron door and pushed it back and here was a small room, couldn't have been more than maybe 12 by 12 and 
had a tile floor. It had a military cot with a mattress on it. And, and there was, a, there was, a, there was a, a shower and there was, a, there was a toilet and there was a sink and there was a metal folding chair. And he said, it's all yours, six bucks a night. I handed him my $36. He took the money, closed the door. When he closed the door, I, I noticed something out of my left peripheral as he, as, he, as he closed the door. And I looked in the direction of the door. And above the door, there was a little shelf. And on the shelf was a small 13-inch black and white television set. And I thought, well, at least I have a TV. And I reached up there and I turned it on. And it was showing snow. These, these white lines across a black background. I turned it to the next channel, and it was showing the same program. (laughs) I went all the way around the 13 channels on that 13-inch television set, and they were all showing the same thing. I remember clicking it off and sitting on that bed thinking, God, where are you? It was 1982. I was now married and traveling with my family. I had two children. And uh, I think the oldest was was five and the youngest two. And we were traveling now together in revival work and moving from place to place. And we were in the city of Warrenville, Illinois, a western suburb of Chicago. The pastor was a church planter. We'd been with him before. He would typically go to a place and plant a church, usually stay two to three years and get it built up, get it organized, charter the church, and then he would get a pastor to come and take it, and he would move on to another city and start another church. we have been with him before. One of the most humble, gracious pastors I've ever been with. Tremendous soul winner. And we were looking forward to these meetings, and we got to Warrenville, and we parked our trailer in, in the driveway of his house, and, and uh, uh, he had a big three-story building, had, had, or three-story house, had seven children, a large family, and we parked there in the driveway and went inside and talked about the meeting. The meeting started the next day in an elementary school, and if it could go wrong, it went wrong. I think it's called Murphy's Law or something like that. I mean, everything went wrong that week. The janitor that was supposed to open the door never would show up. We'd have to break in the building just to have the service. Just everything was going wrong, and the church just wasn't growing. We couldn't get people to come visit, and it just was a difficult, difficult time. And, and about Wednesday, I said to Diane, my wife, I said, Honey, I, this pastor, he's, he's really struggling here. This, this church is not, is not doing what other places where he's been. And, and, and I said, He's really discouraged. His wife's discouraged. His kids are discouraged. And I said, I don't, I don't know what the love offering will be this week. It probably won't be much. But I just feel like the Lord would have us give it to the pastor. Whatever it is, just give it back to him and let him use it for his family. Maybe that will encourage him. And she said, you know, I've been thinking the same thing. Well, I always hated when my wife agreed with me about stuff like that. I, I said, well, let's pray about it for a couple of days. And so we did, and the meetings really didn't change through Friday night. Everything was just kind of tough and difficult. Well, Friday night, he invited us to come into the house after the service and have some popcorn and some Kool-Aid with the kids, and we, we enjoyed a time of fellowship. And Finally, he reached in his pocket, and he pulled out the envelope and handed it to me, and he said, Brother Getch, we did the best we could. It's not, not what I wanted it to be, but he said it's the best we could do. And He said, we appreciate you coming. Well... For the first time and only time in my life, I opened that envelope in the presence of the pastor and I pulled out that check. 
And when I did, I saw how much it was for. It was for $250. Now, in 1982, that was a lot of money. That was an amazing amount of money for a week of revival in any church, much less a church plant. I thought, where did they get this money? But I already knew what I was going to do, and so I, I pulled it out, I turned it over on my hand, and I took out my pen, and I signed the back of it, and I gave it to him, and he, I said, Pastor, God, God's impressed upon us to give this to your family. Well, he tried to resist and give it back. I said, no, 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 uh, uh, we want you to have it. And he began to cry, and his wife began to cry, and the kids began to cry, and I got out of there. There's no sense hanging around that. <laughs> you know, when you obey the Lord, when he tells you to do something, you feel really good about it. We slept like a rock that night and got up the next morning and hooked up our trailer and we were headed to St. James, Minnesota. And I had enough fuel on board to get there, I thought, and we hooked up that 16,000-pound trailer to our truck, and we started up out of Chicago through Wisconsin, I-94, over to La Crosse, and we got to La Crosse, Wisconsin, and I looked down, and both of my fuel tanks were on empty. And I said, Lord, I need gas. And he said, well, get some. I said, well, that's easy for you to say. I don't have any money. I gave all my money to the pastor. I still didn't have a credit card. I didn't have any money. And I said, Lord, I, I, I don't have any money. I still had over 100 miles to go, and I didn't have money to buy gas. And he said, get some. I said, well, Lord, I can't. I, I don't have money. I mean, I had heard preachers talk about pulling in a gas station, filling their car up with gas, and somebody else paid for it. Well, I didn't have that kind of faith. I was operating on a cash basis. <laughs> and I said, Lord, I don't have any money. He said, you have money? And he reminded me in the trailer, we had bought this, this bucket for the kids to play in the dirt with. You know, one of those sand buckets we had bought it at Kmart or whatever, and the kids had played with it. Well, the handle broke off of it, but they didn't want to throw it away. It was kind of a fluorescent yellow color, and they persuaded us to keep it. And, and, and they wanted to throw all of our pennies in that bucket. And save our pennies. We didn't have a goal to give it to anything or use it for anything. We, they just wanted to collect these pennies. And so every time we'd come in, they'd get in our pocket and pull out the pennies and put them in that bucket. And it was about three quarters full. God said, use that. I pulled into a gas station in La Crosse and bought 40 gallons of fuel with pennies. I will never forget the expression on the attendant's face as he counted them two by two on that glass counter. Nor will I forget the expression of the seven people standing behind me waiting to pay for their gas. But God miraculously got us to St. James. We pulled into the Manor Baptist Church, a little clapboard white building with a steeple on the edge of town by the fairgrounds and pulled in there. Small little church running 35. The youngest person in the church was 65 years old. The pastor was working a full-time job at a lumber yard 50 hours a week trying to make ends meet. We pulled in there and got set up and met with the pastor and got ready for the week. Sunday morning, went in, taught a Sunday school class and taught the morning service, gave the morning service message. And after church, nobody said anything about lunch. And I thought, well, they'll, they'll feed us tonight, you know. And so we went out to the trailer, had a few canned goods, threw those together and had lunch and went into the evening service and preached evening service. And after it was over, the pastor said, well, I got to get up at four o'clock in the morning, so I'll see you tomorrow night at seven. We went to bed hungry. The next morning, 
I, I always like to wash down all of our equipment on Monday morning, all the road grime and stuff that would build up on the truck and the trailer. And so I hooked up the hose and got the soap, and I'm washing that trailer down, and I'm having a pity party. I'm saying, God, where are you? I mean, you got us here. Miraculously, you got us here. But Lord, where are you now? I mean, I can fast this week. I don't have to eat anything. That'll be good for me. But I got a wife and two kids in there. And you tell me in the book that if I don't take care of them, I've denied the faith and worse than an infidel. Where are you? There'll be times in your life where you'll wonder, where's God? Maybe you're in one of those moments right now. Maybe there's a difficult, deep water you're going through and you're wondering, Lord, why? Lord, answer me. Lord, where are you? I don't sense your presence. I don't sense your power. Lord, where are you? I think Isaiah is there. The king has died. And all of a sudden, the nation is left without leadership. And Isaiah is a prophet of God, and, and he's wondering, Lord, what's going to happen now? Who's the next leader? What, what is my role? What am I supposed to tell the people? Isaiah, I think, is wondering here, God, where are you? And in kind of a subliminal way, there's an obvious message to this text. But I think in an underlying way, Isaiah reveals three locations where you will always find God. Now, we know from the scripture, God never leaves us nor forsakes us. But as the songwriter Robinson penned, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And there are times where we get separated from God. And Isaiah reminds us of three locations that we can always return to and find God. The first, I believe, is God is always in the holy place. As Isaiah gets a picture or a vision of the, of the throne of God in heaven, he sees these angelic beings, these seraphims, and, and, and they have six wings, and with twain they covered their face, and with twain they covered their feet, and with twain they did fly. And these seraphims, beginning in verse number three, they cried out saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When God seems absent, when God seems vacant, we must return to the holy place. He's always there. You see, the word holy is a qualifying word to everything that God is. God is love, but his love is a holy love. God is a God of wrath, but his wrath is a holy wrath. God is a God of justice, but his justice is a holy justice. Everything about God is qualified by the word holy. He's given us the Holy Bible. He's given us the Holy Spirit to guide us into the truth of the Bible. Everything about God is holy. And I must remind us tonight that the holy and the unholy cannot coexist. In, Isaiah, in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 11, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness? 
The psalmist exhorts us in Psalm 99, worship toward his holy hill. In Revelation 15 and verse 4, John the Revelator says, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. Everything about God is holy. And when we get unholy in our life, there's a distance. There's a gap. And if we want God's power, if we want God's presence, if we want God's protection, if we want God's provision, we must stay in the holy place. God told the children of Israel in Leviticus 11 and verse 45, I am the Lord that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord thy God, am holy. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul told the Corinthian church, and they struggled with holiness. They struggled with some of the temptations of the world. They struggled with some of the baggage of their life prior to salvation. And they often struggled with worldliness and carnality. But Paul said, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the sight of God. How hard do we work on perfecting holiness? People who play an instrument, they practice. I mean, somebody doesn't just walk out here, walk up to a piano and start playing. They practice. Athletes practice and practice and practice for hours to to prepare themselves for the competition of a game. Business people, they, they go through seminars and they study and they think and they, they watch the markets. Why? Because they're, they're practicing business. How hard are we perfecting holiness as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to your former lusts and your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. Now, I know we live in a time where people say, well, yeah, but this is, this is 2022. You know, we have grace. And we have liberty. We, we, God doesn't expect us to live like they did back in the Bible. You know, it's interesting in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, God explains the grace that saves us. And that's how we're saved. For by grace are you saved through faith. So God describes there in chapter 2 and verse 11 of Titus the grace of God that saves us. And then he says in, chap- in, in verse 12, the next verse, teaching us. In other words, this grace that has saved us teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. Amen. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you're living in the first century or you're living in the 21st century, it's this present world. No matter when you live, no matter what the culture is saying, no matter how the environment around you is living, God says we're to be holy. Follow peace and holiness without which no man can see the Lord. You see, when we step out of the holy place, when we step into carnality in a backslidden condition, God is going to seem distant. God is going to seem afar off. God is going to seem to have vacated his throne. We must return to the holy place. But there's a second location. When Isaiah gets this vision of the throne of God, what's his response? Verse 5, woe is me, for I am undone. God is always in the humble place. 
One of my fast becoming favorite verses in the Bible is in Isaiah 66 and verse 2 where it says in part, to this man will I look. Now I don't know about you, but I need God to look my way. I need God's favor. I need God's blessing. I can't be the Christian I, I need to be on my own. I can't be the husband I'm supposed to be on my own. I can't be the dad, the granddad. I, I can't be these things. I can't be the preacher I'm supposed to be. I can't be the teacher I'm supposed to be. I can't be the counselor I'm supposed to be. I can't be the staff member I'm supposed to be. I, I can't do anything without his blessing. For without me, you can do nothing. So I need God to look my way. And it says, to this man will I look, even to him that is of a poor and a contrite spirit, and that trembleth at my word. The humble place. I get to meet a lot of people traveling, as I do, and you meet a lot of great Christians. And I'm with pastors every week of my life, and they're, they're great Christians. But I, I'm not speaking just of people in the ministry. There are lay people in churches all over this world that are wonderful Christians. Amen. And I will tell you there's a common thread that runs through people that I would consider to be greatly used by God, and that's humility. God's always in the humble place. Why? Because these six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look. You see, God doesn't hang around his abominations. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination unto the Lord. In Psalm 138, verse 6, it says, Though the Lord be on high. Well, we established that yesterday morning, didn't we? He's above all. So he's on high. He's above it all. He's the creator of the universe. So the psalmist said, Though the Lord be on high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. Wow. If I asked you tonight, who do you respect? Well, it would depend upon probably the context in which we speak. Again, if you were talking to a musician, a piano player, you would say, who do you respect? They would, they would probably point to someone who plays the piano better than they do, right? Someone that's more skilled, someone that has played it longer, someone that has had more lessons. And they would, they would look up to that and say, that's what I want to get to. That's the skill level. I want to be able to play that someday. I want to play like my piano teacher, or I, like to, I want to play like this particular person. They look up. If you ask somebody in sports, who do you, who do you respect? Well, the, a high school player would look up to a college player. A college player would look up to a professional player. And they say, boy, that's, that's what I want to get to. That's, that's what I want to do. They look up. A business person would say, well, I, I look at this business model over here and how they've done it and how they've created a, a, a nice environment for their workers. And, and they've got a product that sells and, 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 and produces things for people's lives. They, they, they look at a model that's already there and they're looking up. Well, who does God look up to? The Lord be on high. But the Bible says he has respect unto the lowly. But the proud he knoweth afar off. Does God know you afar off? Or tonight does God have respect for your testimony because of humility? 
A man's pride shall bring him low. But honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Why? Because God resisteth the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. When I was a small boy growing up in church, I often heard the name Evangelist Paul Levine. I never met him. He never came to preach at our church. I never read a sermon that he had written. But I heard about Paul Levine, this evangelist. And I remember as a small boy thinking, I'd like to meet that fellow. I'd like to hear him preach sometime in my life. Paul Levine was saved in Iowa at the age of four. Don't ever underestimate what goes on in those Sunday school rooms on Sunday morning. He was called to preach at age four. His mother said after he was called to preach on Sunday nights, he would come home and he would grab his little Bible and jump up on the piano stool and start preaching. (laughs) Paul Levine graduated from high school at age 15. Never went to college. Immediately started into evangelism. Couldn't even drive a car. Had to take public transportation, hitchhike, to get to his meetings. Paul Levine began to travel as a 15-year-old evangelist all across Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan. If you go to any of those states I just mentioned a minute ago, and you mention the name Paul Levine, somebody will come up afterwards and say, I got saved under Paul Levine. By 17, he had a singer traveling with him. His name was Bob Finley. Bob Finley was completely blind. And these two men would travel together and play their mandolins and sing, and Paul would preach. Dr. Levine had a radio program called Bible Echoes out of Waterloo, Iowa, where he preached the gospel six days a week over that radio station. He he organized something called Bible Tracks Incorporated. And over the years, they have printed. It's still in existence today. I was in a Flying J truck stop, my second home. I was in there the other day. And I, I, I went to use the restroom. I opened the stall door, and two tracks fell on the ground. One in Spanish, one in English, both produced by Bible Tracks Incorporated. Thousands, millions of tracts in hundreds of languages have been printed by Bible Tracts Incorporated. Dr. Paul Levine. I had heard of him, but I'd never met him. And I thought, someday I want to meet Paul Levine. Well, it was spring of 1981, and we were holding a revival in Danville, Illinois. And uh, I was there with my family. We were parked at the church in our trailer, and I was sitting there one morning, and a knock came on the door, and it was the church secretary. She said, you have a phone call. We didn't have cell phones in those days. You know, someone said, wouldn't it be interesting and nice if somebody would invent a little cord that could uh, attach to your phone and to the wall? That way we wouldn't lose it. That's already been thought of. So she said, you have a phone call. So I, I ran into the church to take the phone call. And the person on the other end said, this is Bill Rice III at the Bill Rice Ranch in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Well, I I had heard of the Bill Rice Ranch. I had heard John R. Rice preach when I was in college. I had heard uh, Joe B. Rice's brother. I had heard heard Bill Rice preach, but I had never met anybody really from the ranch officially. I I knew about the Bill Rice Ranch. I'd never been there. And here's Bill Rice III, the the, the president of the ranch. And he said, uh, Brother Getch, we've never met. But he said, I've heard about your ministry. And as you know, we have youth weeks here at the camp during the summer. And I would like to invite you to come and be one of the preachers 
During a week, during the summer of 1983, two summers away, he said, do you have your calendar? Well, I always took my calendar with me, and I opened it up, and sure enough, I had that week available, and we booked that meeting. I was excited. Not to preach to teenagers, though I'm excited to preach to teenagers. I was excited because the Bill Rice Ranch started in 1953. Bill and Kathy Rice had a deaf daughter. And as a result of that, they bought a piece of ground outside of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, 1,500 acres, and they started the Bill Rice Ranch, a place where deaf people could come and hear the gospel in sign language. Well, that first summer, they had one youth week. They had deaf weeks, but they also had one youth week. And they invited Paul Levine to be the first evangelist to teenagers at the Bill Rice Ranch. And from 1953 until the late 90s, Dr. Levine preached every youth week at the Bill Rice Ranch. Sometimes six weeks during the summer, he would be at the ranch preaching. Well, as the camps got larger, they decided to bring in a second preacher to take some of the load off of Dr. Paul. And Dr. Bill was asking me to be that second guy. I was going to get to meet Paul Levine. I couldn't wait. That week finally came, and I remember that first night. I walked in a side door into the John R. Rice Auditorium. There were 1,400 teenagers sitting there waiting for the service to begin. 1,400. I didn't even look at them. I thought, I wonder if I'm going to meet Dr. Levine. I wonder where he is. I walked in the door. A man came across and shook my hand and said, Welcome to the ranch, Brother Getch. It was Dr. Bill. We had never met yet. And I said, thank you, it's great to be here. He said, uh, come up on the platform. I want you to meet Dr. Paul. Well, I looked up on the platform, and it was a stage at least this high, maybe a little higher. There was nothing on the platform except a piano and one pew that went all the way across the back. It must have been 30 feet long. And the only other thing, the only other person on that platform at that point was Dr. Paul. He was sitting on the very end of that pew. I knew him because I'd seen his picture. I said, there he is. And we're walking up now to meet him. He had his Bible open. He had a steno notebook hanging out of the Bible. He had his pen out, and he's writing furiously. He's preaching that night. I think he's writing his sermon. We don't want to disturb him. We walked up those stairs, and and Dr. Bill said, Dr. Paul, this is Brother Getch. And Dr. Paul, he folded up that Bible real quick, and he stood up, and he shook my hand with both of his hands. He said, Brother Getch, I am so excited to meet you. He said, I can't wait to hear you preach. I thought, hear me preach. I'm here to hear you preach. He said, here, sit by me. Sit by me. I sat down. He opened his Bible in that steno notebook. He continued to write. I'm, I'm trying to read his sermon, but I can't read a thing he's written down. We sat there and the service started. Dr. Jim Stoltenborough began to lead the teenagers in some amazing singing And Dr. Paul, the whole time, he's just got that Bible open. He's making notes. I could tell he was praying. And finally, it came time to introduce him. And Dr. Bill went up and he said, all right, young people, now tonight we get to hear the great Dr. Paul Levine. Dr. Paul's been preaching for decades. He's preached every youth week here since 1953. He said, Dr. Paul, how many sermons have you preached here at the ranch? Dr. Paul wasn't even listening to the introduction. He's still writing away. But he heard, his, he heard his name and his head bopped up and he said, uh, uh, 1,014. 
And Dr. Bill said, think of that, young people, 1,014 times this man that we're going to hear tonight has preached to teenagers just like you. And Dr. Paul, he, 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 he nudged me in the ribs. He said, I really don't know how many times I preached. <laughs> he said, all I know is I ran out of sermons a long time ago. <laughs> that was Dr. Paul. I had the privilege of preaching with him dozens of times there at the ranch over those years. One night we were together in a teen week there, and it was a hard week. Teens weren't responding well at all. And it was Thursday night, and we had, not, we had seen a little trickling of, of, of movement, but not much. And it was Dr. Paul's turn to preach, and I was sitting next to him as I always did. And during the special number, he had that Bible open, that steno pad out, and he's writing, he's praying. And I knew he was so burdened that God would work that night. And during the special, I kind of touched his knee, and I said, Dr. Paul, I'm praying for you. He leaned into me. He said, oh, thanks, Brother Gutch. He said, you know, people tell me to trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. I do. But he said, I don't trust the devil. And it was things that he said like that that began to shape and mold my thinking. I don't remember the year. I was asked to do a session at a conference in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. It was a preacher's meeting, and I was just invited to come and do an afternoon session, a three-hour session. Can you imagine? Three hours from one to four, and they gave me a topic, and that was my only thing to do in that conference. It was all week long, but I, I just had that one session for three hours. Well, it was right after lunch. It's hard to preach, even to preachers, right after lunch. And I did everything I knew to do to keep them awake, and I, I did my session, and when it was over, they were dismissed to go to supper and, and then come back for the great preaching that night. And so when I finished, I dismissed them, and they all headed to the back. I collected my things and was coming off the platform. And while everybody was going that way, there was one man coming this way. He was in his 90s now. Cancer riddling his body. His wife already in heaven, legally blind, groping from pew to pew, coming down that middle aisle. It would be just two more weeks until he would join his wife in heaven. And he had that Bible open, and that steno notebook hanging out. And he's coming down that aisle, and I saw him. I said, I ran off the platform. I said, Dr. Paul, Dr. Paul, I didn't know you were here. You know what he said? He didn't say, hey, Brother Gadge. You know what he said? He pointed that notebook. And I mean, he had written giant letters on that page. I mean, they were huge because he was legally blind. He could barely see. He said, I missed letter E under point five. I need letter E under point five. I'm thinking, you don't need it. You're going to heaven in two weeks. <laughs> Just sit down and wait, you know. I, I, I said, Dr. Paul, you don't need it. Tears began rolling out of his eyes. He said, oh, Brother Catch, I need it. 
I need to know God better. I need to know his word more. What was letter E under point five? That was Dr. Paul. The humble place. We need a good dose of humility in our nation tonight. And judgment must begin at the house of God. We need to get back to the humble place. But there's a third location. It's in verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, Hear my Lord. Send me. When God seems absent, when God seems vacated from the throne, you'll find him in the holy place. You'll find him in the humble place. And you'll find him always in the harvest place. Jesus came to this earth for one reason, to seek and to save that which was lost. God is always concerned about the harvest. Jesus told the disciples, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Lift up your eyes, look on the fields, they're white already to harvest. He's always in the harvest place. Listen, when God seems absent in your life, grab some tracks. Go pass him out. He'll meet you there. When God seems vacant in your life, uh, uh, call the church office. Say, Pastor, is there somebody I can visit in the hospital? Is there a shut-in I can go by and pray with and encourage? we got to get back into the ministry, back into the harvest place. That's where God is. That's where his heart is. He'll meet you there. He's all about souls. He's all about the lost. He's all about the Christian that needs to be edified. He's all about the harvest. How involved are we in that harvest? We wonder where's God? Luke chapter 2 is our favorite chapter when it comes to the Christmas story and all the gospels contain that story. Matthew, of course, Again, a lot of detail. And at Christmas time, we love to preach those texts. We love to talk about the birth of Christ. And there are a lot that's going on there. The, the, the shepherds and the, and the wise men. And we've got Mary getting the announcement that she's going to have a child of the Holy Spirit. And we've got Joseph involved. And then there's later Simeon and Anna. And there's just a lot of preaching that goes on there from those texts at Christmas time. But then the Bible kind of goes silent about Jesus. Until his public ministry begins at about age 30. But there's one time. There's one event in his life. You remember it? He was 12. And his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, take him up to Jerusalem to a feast. And they traveled in a group, probably for security reasons, maybe for fellowship, I don't know, maybe accountability, but they, they travel in a group up to Jerusalem, and they celebrate the feast. They, they, they worship the Lord there. And then they leave, and they go back home, and they're still in this large group as they travel back home. And they got a day's journey, and they realized, we've lost God. How do you lose God? They lost him. And, 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 and Mary, you know, you can imagine this conversation. Mary says, hey, Joseph, have you seen Jesus? 
Uh, not today, Mary. Uh, I haven't. Well, well, Joseph, when's the last time you saw him? Um, I think it was when we left Jerusalem. Left Jerusalem? That was, that was 24 hours ago, Joseph. Where is Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? Has anybody seen Jesus? They lost Jesus. So the only thing they could think of, we left him at church. So they hurry back to Jerusalem, and they found him in the temple. And there he is as a 12-year boy, and he's answering the questions of the scholars about the scripture. They were marveling. Well, he wrote it, so he had the answers. Now, all the Bible gives you are words. So you sometimes have to provide the emotion. The words are, Mary said, son, Thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Where hast thou been? Those are the words. <laughs> I don't think that was the emotion. Have you ever lost your kid at Walmart? <laughs> son, son, are you okay? Are you okay? We were worried. It's like, oh, where did you go? You know, there was emotion there. And Jesus calmly says, how is it that you sought me? Wist you not that I must be about my father's business? You should have known where to look. I'd be in the harvest place. God's always in the harvest place. When God seems absent, we got to get back to the holy place. We got to get to the humble place. We've got to get in the harvest place. By the way, that girl I broke up with that day, we've been married now for 48 and a half years. But see, I wasn't ready for marriage at that moment. There was some purging that needed to take place in my life before I would be ready for something as serious and sacred as marriage. And those six days in that hotel room in Los Angeles, that door never opened. No one came in, no one went out. I never ate a bite of food. Just me and God in the humble place. See, when I came out of college, I'm ready to preach in the stadiums. Lord, where are the 10,000? I'll go preach. I got three sermons. God said, whoa, 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 whoa. We got to go to the humble place first. And I've preached in thousands of revival meetings since, but that's the best revival I've ever been in. Just me and God in the humble place. And that Monday morning in St. James behind my trailer having that pity party, a car pulled in to the driveway of the church. It was a 1954 Ford, old antique car. And behind the wheel was a man that was affectionately called in that region Tiny. He weighed over 400 pounds. Huge man. He was not a member of Manor Baptist Church. In fact, he and his wife and two little girls lived 40 miles away. But they'd come to the service on Sunday night, sat on the very front row, and asked the preacher if they could talk to my wife and I after. We sat down. We were younger than them. And he began to weep. And he said, Brother Getch, we don't have a, a church in our town. This is the closest church that preaches the Bible to our home. And he said, we don't know what to do. Our girls are little. To drive 80 miles to a service seems so hard. He said, we, we, we thought about starting a church, but we don't, we don't know anything about that. 
Would you please pray for us and give us some thoughts? Well, my wife and I, we didn't know much, but we sat there and we cried with him. We prayed with him. And here he is on Monday morning. And he rolled down the window. He saw me behind the trailer. He rolled down the window. He said, Brother Gatch, do you need any food? Now, who pulls into a church parking lot and asks a question like that? I kind of strolled over to the, to the car and I said, Tiny, what, what do you mean? He said, do you need any food? I said, well, sure. He said, get in the car. I got in. He started driving. And we're driving to his house, 40 miles away. And I said, Tiny, what's this all about? He said, I work for the Jolly Green Giant. I'm, I'm looking at this 400-pound man thinking, what do you do? Are you the mascot? Or what? I mean, what? <laughs> I didn't know it till just then, but St. James is located in one of the most fertile valleys of all of Minnesota. Tens of thousands of vegetable farms in Del Monte, Jolly Green Giant. They have these processing plants, and Tiny was an executive with Jolly Green Giant. He said, Brother Gatch, I have four freezers in my garage full of food. He said, we mispackage stuff. We mislabel stuff. I bring it home. I throw it in those freezers. He said, I walked out this morning into my garage to go to work, and I thought, I wonder if that preacher's hungry. Now, I'm sitting there thinking, this is great. This is awesome. This is really cool. But seriously, God, broccoli? (laughs) I mean, I'm hungry, but green beans? I'm, can, couldn't you speak to a beef farmer or somebody? <laughs> we got to that house. He flipped up that garage door, and he opened those freezers. And I didn't know it, but Jolly Green Giant made Swiss steak. They made lasagna. He's loading that 54 Ford up with box after box after box of food. We went back to the church. We had to borrow the, the pastor's freezer, the church freezer. Our freezer was full. By Friday night, we were giving away free box food. Anybody come hear me preach for five minutes. And you know what God said? He said, son, you, you, you just keep helping people in the front row. You just stay in the harvest place. I can feed you. Amen. Does God seem absent tonight? He's not that far away. As the preacher said a minute ago, if we'll draw nigh to God, if we'll go back to the holy place, if there's something in our life tonight that's between us and the Savior, if there's something unholy there, let's get it out tonight. And you'll sense the presence and the power and the provision, the protection of God once again. Are we in the humble place? Are we trying to do this on our own? Are we in the harvest place? Are we just wanting to be comfortable and things to be convenient, but we're really not concerned to lift up our eyes and look on the fields that are white, all ready to harvest? Where's God? Draw nigh to him. He'll draw nigh to you.